Welcome to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, Season 2, Episode 8. My name is Michael Bond, and I'm sitting here with Pastors Kendall Kersey and Todd Stanley. Hello. Hey, everybody. Okay, so today I think what we're going to talk about is the value of tradition. So the tension between, let's say, tradition and creativity. Uh, how do you stay abreast of everything in the culture and how do you adapt to the new ways of thinking while also maintaining the value of tradition? What are some of the dangers? What are some of the tools that you can give pastors as they're trying to stay relevant, let's say, if that's even a concern, which I think is up for debate. Um, and then we can also talk about ways that you plan on uh, rejuvenating yourself for the new year. So by the time this podcast drops, it'll probably be mid late December. Um, and we're going to be coming into a new year and maybe there's some things that you do to get some closure to the year that you're leaving and starting off fresh with the year that you're entering into. And how do you maybe prevent from getting yourself stuck in, in a constant sort of cycle of, well, I never really got a break between 2021 and 2022. So I'm starting to feel like it's just all one long marathon that's wearing me out. Maybe some tools for uh, resisting that. But first, let's get into uh, this week in church leadership. Okay. Uh, I think I've got one here. So uh, Dan Ryland, I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with Dan Ryland. If you're not, uh, you should be. DanRyland.com. Um Dan Ryland is the executive pastor for 12 Stone Church and just a great, uh, great insights on leadership and specifically leadership in the church. But he was talking about, or there's an article on his site actually about uh, five ways to lead for increased spiritual impact in 2022. And so I think maybe this ties into some of our larger conversation today. Um, but he says... Um, there are five ways to lead for best results in 2022. Number one, lead with relevance. Um, and he says, relevance doesn't mean watering down the gospel. Instead, it's about understanding how to interpret, communicate to, and connect with the current culture. Um, and then he says, lead with empathy. Most leaders currently deal with elevated levels of prolonged stress, not commonly uh, debilitating, but if it continues long enough, the compounding nature can dull or even numb empathy to human need. And so then he talks about some ways that we can cultivate empathy. Uh, number three, lead with faith and conviction. God is with you and he is for you. That is the foundation of your faith and fodder for all the conviction you need to lead with confidence. Uh, number four, lead with truth. And he said, almost daily I hear this phrase, I don't know who or what to believe. The world is hungry for truth, and as a messenger of the gospel, you have the truth, and the truth will set people free. So number four, lead with truth. And then number five, lead with hospitality. Uh, the pandemic has made human connection and hospitality more challenging. A new year is a great opportunity to meet that challenge by helping all who attend feel comfortable, valued, and at home when they attend your church. Uh, and of course, you know, I just hit the the high spots there. It's a, really a great article worth worth checking out, uh, as well as checking out some of his other stuff. But I thought those were some really good leadership insights as we um, approach 2022. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, especially number two really stood out to me, just the idea of stress causing a lack of empathy. So one of the things that I'm still trying to learn how to do is work in an environment that has an unrelenting desire for success or, or not, maybe not success, but excellence is a better way of putting it like a, a push for excellence. Um, 
I, I have a hard time managing the tension between that and um, having like training people who are just starting out. Um, and sometimes it can make me feel like I'm being too critical of the people that I'm trying to train uh, because if they're making mistakes all over the place, then that detracts from the excellence. And so I have to walk that that bridge between, okay, is this, what's the final product going to look like versus how is this person developing? And then what adds a, a layer of complexity to that is that many, many people who you're training, they, well, everyone that you're training actually for that matter has a, they have a personal life also. It's not just developing them as a worker. It's also developing them as a person. Yeah. And so really pastoring people who are uh, trying to help you produce something, uh, I've found to be pretty difficult because of how much focus it takes to maintain the excellence. Uh, just the chance of me being able to reach into their life on a personal level um, has been difficult and I'm still learning how to do that. So if either of you have any insight on that, that would be helpful. <laughs> Well, I wasn't going to give you insight, but uh, I think that number two stuck out to me the most as well because it's something that I tend to struggle with, uh, uh, being empathetic to people. I have more of a coach's mentality, and the way that I've been brought up my entire life is like, don't make excuses for anything or anybody and suck it up and let's keep moving. And so, I mean, honestly, that's like most of the leadership in my life forever has, uh, been that way. Um, and so I'm still learning as well, uh, how to empathize properly with people. Um, but I would also say that it is important though, if you're going to, uh, lead with empathy to actually understand what empathy is and that it isn't just making excuses for other people that, that I think that true empathy is, uh, you know, seeing where people are at, understanding where they're at, taking the time to, uh, understand where they're at. And then, also possibly helping them to have the tools when the time is right to, um, to improve, you know, as you're talking with, uh, as far as like excellence or whatever is recognizing what is, what is the barrier here? How do I understand that barrier better? And then I think once you understand that barrier better on whatever it is, then you can lead them better. And it's not just making an excuse of, well, that's just how they are. And I'll just be empathetic to how they are and then stop there. You know, I think the key point in that is saying lead with empathy, like help lead those people too. So, yeah. Um, and I think uh, there's a, there's a book that I read a while back called uh, leadership and self-deception. And it talked about how that when, um, when there's a, when we, when we have a disagreement with someone or when there's an obstacle that is in the way. So like in, in the case that we're talking about, when we feel like there's this tension between excellence and this person's performance, right? Um, that in those moments, what happens is that we, we begin to see that person as an obstacle in our path rather than as a person. Uh, and so then we begin to treat them as an object um, rather than treating them as people. And if in those stressful moments we can uh, stay rooted to the understanding that this is another human being with a fully formed set of emotions with a whole life outside of this moment that I may or may not know about with, you know, um, with all of the same 
like concerns and stresses and things like that that I am dealing with as well, then if we can stay grounded to that truth in those moments, then we can continue to treat them like a partner and a team member and a human being um, rather than getting, you know, and then be frustrated with the situation and not the person uh, because we've been able to keep them separated from the thing that's going on. Now, that doesn't mean that then we don't address like a performance issue or uh, that there may not be some correction and teaching that has to happen or whatever, but it means that in that that teaching, in that correction, um, we... We, we honor the Imago Dei, right? We honor the image of God in that person and give them the dignity that they deserve um, in those moments. So is it just a couple things? The first thing is that one thing that I've found useful in this domain is I try to stay calm as much as possible when things are going wrong. And I know that there are people around me that are, I'm trying to train. I try to stay calm, even if I'm not calm on the inside, at least express calmness. (laughs) Um, Uh And then also if I happen to, some of the frustration comes through, I try to remember who, who was around me when I showed that. And then I end up reaching out to them after, like I'll send them a text or something. Hey, I wasn't really mad at you when this was happening. It was just that all this stuff was going on. And I try to kind of reach out to smooth it over. Um, and then the other thing is, is it just a difficult reality that we have to deal with that so much of that training, so much of that, uh, building up has to come after a specific failure. So like, do you have to, do you just have to wait sometimes until, uh, a specific thing goes wrong and then you just talk it over with the person after it happened? Like, is that just something that we have to accept or is it, or can we prepare enough to where those failures come few and far between and those opportunities to train after the fact are more or less occasional instead of the norm? I think it, I think it requires both. Honestly, I think a lot of people, um, no matter how much you train them on the front end, um, and this comes from uh, playing sports all my life, being in music all my life, like actually having to perform <laughs> at a high level. And then if you don't, now you have to learn from that. Right. But also practicing a ton at the beginning or taking instruction at the beginning. Um, I think what happens is I think failure is honestly some of our best teacher. Like it's, it's, it's oftentimes our best teacher. And so we can have all of this information that comes in and we can have literally everything taught to us, um, as individuals, but it's usually not going to stick and really hold, uh, really, we're not going to really hold on to it until we see it not happen. And until we see, Oh dang, I failed because this didn't happen. And so I think it's both things. We can prepare as much as we want to on the front end, but the best teacher is failure. Mm -hmm. So those are the best opportunities um, to say, hey, you know, this is why we prepared in this way, or this is why um, we trained for this specific reason, or, hey, remember, this is what we had talked about. It didn't happen. Now this is why we failed, or this is why we didn't meet the mark. So let's talk about how we step back towards that. So Yeah, and I think it's beneficial too to remember that people have different learning styles. I mean, you're going to have some team members that like reading the manual is going to be the thing that they need and it's going to flip that switch. And so like they're going to prep on the front end by doing all of that studying and then come in and perform well. There are going to be other people that they could read the manual 15 times, but until they get their hands dirty, so to speak, uh, and, and start to learn 
hands on, it's just not ever going to click for them. Yeah. You know, and so we have to we have to be aware of those things and then try to lead in such a way that that provides opportunity for people to learn in both of those ways, you know, so that um that person who learns by studying the manual, for example, we don't just throw them to the wolves and then they get frustrated and quit because it's like, I was not prepared. Like I didn't have the tools that I needed to be ready. And then for the people who learn the other way, we have to provide opportunities for them to go in and just get their hands dirty and, and maybe do that in a, maybe less critical environment. Right. So it's not, you know, the biggest event of the year, you don't throw them in there the first time you do, you find other opportunities so that you can, because you know, they're going to fail, right? It's yeah. going to happen. So you try to minimize the impact of that. And so I think, I think Kendall's right. It's both and, and we have to just try to do our best to, to lead in ways that provide opportunity in both ways. Mm -hmm. So let's cycle for a moment over uh, point number one, because I thought that was interesting too. Point number one being that we shouldn't water down the gospel, but we should present it in a way that is relevant or cultur culturally relevant. And we can talk about relevance in different ways too. But one of the things that's kind of been like a hobby horse of mine from the beginning has been the um, the church's hesitancy to engage with the disciplines. So for instance, um, you can think of science, you can think of medicine, you can think of... Uh, really anything that is emergent of the scientific method. I think that the church not knowing how to have that conversation has just sort of backed away from it. And here's my issue with that. While I, I don't think it's necessary to understand the world scientifically in order to understand the gospel, I do think that there are many, many people, particularly post-enlightenment, who that, like that's the language they speak. That's that's where they're, they're born into a worldview <laughs> that is shaped by the disciplines. And um, I... <laughs> So, for instance, the the supposed dichotomy between psychology and spirituality, it's like, it's not obvious to me where the dividing line is there. Uh, I, I don't know where psychology ends and spirituality begins. It seems to me that psychology often is just a new name we've plastered over spirituality in many respects. And so I think there's a fear of engaging with the disciplines because of the worldview that the disciplines have been couched in, namely like, I don't know, like a, a Darwinian molecules to man evolution kind of like, Oh, well, we, that doesn't fit with the narrative. So we don't want to, we don't want to get in, we don't want to get bogged down in the narratives that have been spun off of the disciplines, because it is true that people have made science into, a, they've made a worldview out of it. They've made religion out of it. Essentially they've made, they've taken faith-based presuppositions and they've, they've drafted a narrative you know, outside of the disciplines. Now, what do you think about whether or not the church should at least try to understand the disciplines better? And maybe this makes more sense talking about it from like a, like two different religions, let's say. If you're going to try to win Muslims over to the faith, or if you're trying to witness to Muslims, it seems to me like it would be a pretty good idea to at least understand Islam, so that whenever you're talking with them, you're not blatantly misrepresenting their worldview. Because if you blatantly misrepresent their worldview, the, the thing that you're communicating, as far as I'm concerned, is either A, I don't care about what you believe, so I don't really care about you, or I know what you believe and I am intentionally misrepresenting it. What do you think about all that? Should should the church take these things seriously or should we just leave it where it is? 
Man, there's a whole bunch of stuff there, right? So I'll try to take some of these in order if I'm remembering the order correctly, all right? Um, relevance in terms of engaging scientific disciplines. The pushback I would give you there is that I don't think that most people's worldview is shaped by science. Hmm. I think that most people's worldview is shaped by humanism, right? We believe that we um, have or should have autonomy over every single aspect of our lives. I should be able to make all of the decisions, right? Your book can't tell me how I should live my life or, you know, that's okay for you to hold that particular opinion, but please do not try to tell me that I should live my life that way. I get to make all of my own decisions, all of my own choices. I, I am I am my own Lord, right? Um, and so I think that is the prevalent worldview that shapes most people's uh, thinking um, rather than science necessarily. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't understand science, but it I do think that it means that in terms of people applying the scientific method to the way they view the world, we're much more governed by feelings and emotions than we would, uh, we would want ourselves to believe, probably. Um, and so that would be my, my pushback on that. The second thing I would say is that um, science and religion ask two fundamentally different questions. Which leads to problems on both sides, honestly. Um, science asks, how did this happen? And religion is really primarily concerned with why did this happen? And when we try to answer the other question with, like, okay, listen, man, we might get in, might get in the weeds here, <laughs> right? If I look at Genesis 1... And I try to answer the question, how did this happen with the narrative of Genesis 1? I'm asking the wrong question. Mm -hmm. And I am putting religion, right? And, I, you know, as a Christian, I am asking the wrong question. And I am always in that way going to end up pitting my worldview, pitting my faith against against a discipline that was never intended to answer the same kinds of questions. Mm -hmm. Science, on the other hand, deals with how did this happen? They don't really care about the why, right? At least not in terms of, of science. Religion, and Christianity in particular, is always concerned with the why because the why goes back to God's you know initiative toward us to love us to save us to provide a way for us to be reconciled to the father and that begins at creation right the creation whether it's seven literal days or whether it's you know uh poetry that's you know no matter how you view it the, the question that Genesis 1 is trying to answer and then that the entirety of Scripture begins to deal with is why would an all-knowing, all-powerful, you know, omniscient, omnipotent, you know, why would this God 
create us. Why, what is this expression of love that he is showing toward us? What is it, you know, and, and, and why would he do that? And when we concern ourselves with that and stop trying to answer questions that Scripture doesn't even address, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we would be much better off in terms of how we engage with the world. The, the why is always relevant, always mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah, I'll stop there and you guys can weigh in if you want. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that I think you uh, hit the nail on the head there. I mean, I, I was going to say essentially in lesser terms that I think one of the reasons why the church backs away from that is because they can't answer some of the questions uh, well enough um, to satisfy to satisfy those who are asking the question because they're not qualified. I think there's a lot of pastors who including myself, who would not be qualified <laughs> to speak into some of the science stuff or to, to some of the psychology things. Like I know a little bit of psychology. I mean, I took some classes in college uh, and have and have kept, quote unquote, studying it <laughs> like once every three months. <laughs> um, but I would not be qualified to be like, yeah, this is what uh, this is what the Bible says about you know psychology. This is where it mixes, intermingles with spirituality, and this is like right. so. I'm not qualified on that, so I can't really speak to some of those things. And I think that you uh, in the past possibly there's probably been pastors, churches maybe that have tried to speak on certain things and then done more damage um, than good. You know, um, I think what you just said about trying to answer the question of of how instead of answering the question of why, but what the Bible tells you is why and not necessarily the how. I think a lot of people have got hung up, especially throughout Genesis and have turned some people away, you know, about, uh, well, you know, if you can't believe what I believe and, you know, if you don't believe uh, exactly this scientific way in Genesis it lays out, then, you know, you don't have a faith. And so like, I think people have been turned off by that. And it's because the church as a whole is not qualified. Now, that being said, I don't think that means that we should just throw it out and not address it, especially when you talked about humanism. Like to me, I think about when you started to bring that up, I was like, well, technically that's a science, a social science, right? Like, so it's sociology um, and it's psychology essentially as they work together. And I think that we would do a better job of trying to understand that um, so that we can reach our people in a, in a better way. Um, so that when they do have the questions of why we know how to answer it, um, with, with gospel centered answers, but also understanding where they're at yeah. right? in number two, it says leading with empathy, like understanding where someone is really at and how to get to the root of the question they're asking or the thing that they're searching for, the thing that they're dealing with. And so it would, uh, behoove us to at least have some sort of knowledge of what is going on within the culture, social, uh, sociologically and psych, uh, psychologically. Um, but I think that we, we don't need to answer the questions of how all the time, you know? Yeah, you both made good points that I want to touch on before we get to the next topic. Um, Todd, I like the idea, what you articulated about how um, people's fundamental drives, their motivations, the way they're seeing the world is not birthed out of the scientific method in the sense that it is humanism, that, that they're they're not essentially the, the periodic table of the elements is not motivating <laughs> their day-to-day decisions on what yeah. they choose to do. Um, and so I do think that, yes, it, the disciplines seem to, they tend to be like a post hoc rationalization for 
other kinds of motiv motivating factors. So I'm going to make a decision and then I'm going to say, Oh, here's a study that supports my decision. And so that's what we see a lot of is like, I prefer to see the world this way. And here are a bunch of studies that verify the way that I'm choosing to see it. Sure. Um, and so that's, that's super good. Kendall, um, you, you had mentioned that there are many uh, people in pastoral leadership or church leadership who are not qualified to have those discussions in terms of psychology or sociology or whatever it is. And I think it's also true that there are many people uh, in the world of psychology, I'd say probably the overwhelming majority of psychologists are not qualified to have the theological discussion. Um, and so mm -hmm. we end up with this gap where uh, I think that there is this temptation to build narrative always because everyone's wanting to answer the question of like, where are we from? Why are we here? Where are we going? Like these big, big questions. And so if you are an expert on a certain thing, uh, the temptation to want to build a narrative off of that, even if, even if that thing you're an expert in doesn't study the whole, the, the, the full corpus of reality, the full, uh, it doesn't look at the comprehensive picture. Um, there's still the temptation to build the narrative off of that. And so I think that if we could work to close that gap somehow, if we could get more people who are theologically informed operating in the domains of the disciplines and more people who are, uh, you know, informed of the disciplines operating inside the church, we would, we might be somewhere closer to the mark. Um, but yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, and I'd, I'd want to acknowledge in all of this that I think that there are like, thoughtful Christian people with solid biblical worldviews that are operating in the disciplines that are operating in these areas. Um, I think part of the, part of the rub is that um, it's not all that sensational. And mm -hmm. so it doesn't make for good headlines. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I think that there is good work happening in those places um, we just don't hear about it. Yeah, I want. I did want to bring up this real quick, um, especially with the answering of why and kind of mixing the disciplines with uh, with Christianity um, and theology. I think a pastor who I've followed for a while now who does an amazing job at this is Louis Giglio. Yeah. Um, he he has some incredible illustrations and sermons that he talks about the scientific stuff behind. And one of my favorite ones is he talks about just the different sounds that like he starts with these whale sounds yeah. and then he goes all the way up into the sky, into space and starts to take sounds from stars. And, uh, and he's a Chris musician. Tomlin comes in. Yeah. And then Chris Tomlin uh, comes in, but he actually, they actually, he's a musician and he actually produced based off of these sounds, produced a song that or produced part of a song that went with uh, how great is our God that Chris Tomlin wrote. And um, anyways, it, the reason I bring that up, he has a whole bunch of other stuff too, but the reason I bring that up is because he doesn't try to answer the question of how, He's answering the question of why, um, and he's saying, like, the universe declares of your glory, you know? The whole yeah. earth declares of your glory. And so he's using it as a—he actually— that sermon is about worship and he's talking about how the earth cries out and the universe cries out to God. So he doesn't try to answer why is this star making this sound right. or, or how is this star making this sound? He's saying, why is it? And the reason why is to declare the glory of the Lord. And he, I mean, again, he has a bunch of different messages that are scientifically, uh, that have some scientific illustrations on them. They're really cool. So, well, and much of our faith, we have from, we have no problem most of the time going, like, for example, the transformation that God made in my heart is inexplicable. 
I can't tell you how. Yeah. Right? But I can tell you why. Because I've experienced the love of Christ. I've experienced that, you know, um, when we see something miraculous happen, when when deaf ears are opened or blind eyes are opened, or, you know, we even if you just look at the, the miracles of Christ in the scriptures, you know, you go, I can't tell you how that happens. Yeah. I can't, I can't, I, I, it's, it's inexplicable. But I can tell you why. Right. And, uh, and, and yet we fall into this temptation over and over and over again of trying to answer the hows. Um, and I just, for the most part, I can't say never, but for the most part, it's just not profitable. It's just not. Um, and it's not the question people are answer, are asking either for the yeah. most part. Right. Yeah. So not in terms of their soul, not in terms of mm-hmm. their, emotional well-being not in terms of their spiritual you know not in t- mm-hmm. not in terms that we don't ask why or we don't ask how in in those terms for the most part you know uh, we ask why and, and so that's the question we should be addressing yeah yeah I would, most people aren't on their deathbed wondering what happened before the big bang mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah um okay so speaking of maintaining foundations in the midst of new or incoming information. Let's talk a little bit about the value of tradition uh, and also the value of what I'm going to call creativity. We can think of it as like openness or the um, ability to adapt to new landscapes, whatever it is. Like it is the case. I think that it's definitely the case that we have to be adaptable because our environments are always changing. So Mm -hmm. we have to be able to adapt to them. So we, it requires people with creativity and the ability to, to, to adapt. But there's also this problem of, we don't want to dismantle a system that we don't understand. So like a good way of illustrating this, I think is you can take people who are conservative in temperament and maybe liberal in temperament. And you can say that a conservative would walk up to a fence and ask the question, why is this fence here? I should figure out why this fence is here. Whereas someone who's more of a liberal or open temperament would walk forward and say, this fence is in my way. I need to take it out. Um, And so if you have something that is maybe you think is obstructing a a desired goal, uh, it seems to me there are certain kinds of people who would want to just get rid of that thing in order to get to the goal. Mm -hmm. And then there are certain types of people who would want to ask why that thing is there and then figure that out before making a move off of that. And some people, I think, never want to make a move. They're just too, they're too stuck in their ways. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's good either. Right. And so there's like dangers on both sides. So how do you personally navigate the tension between tradition and new ideas? Or let's, let's say even if there's nothing new under the sun, just rediscovered ideas, ideas that are not mainstream right now or not, uh, you know, long-term or haven't ha- haven't enjoyed long-term popularity in your own lifetime. What do you do to, to bridge that tension? I'll tell you something really quick. Uh, I, I default to my leadership, honestly, <laughs> a lot of times there's a lot of things that I would love to do that would quote unquote, uh, break the mold of how we do things. Um, but I'm not going to get the backing to be able to do them. You know, like, and I know that, and there, yeah. that's okay because that's not the tradition or the culture or whatever word you even want to use uh, for us as a church. And so, like, there are a ton of things I would love to do, but it's just not going to happen because I default to my leadership. Now, if I am the person in charge of that, 
you know, um, or there are certain parameters that I can uh, create within or do certain different things within. Um, I'll be honest, I don't usually hold to to traditions very much or very well, if at all. And I usually, and this is probably very wrong, uh, but I usually don't care who cares. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I would rather be on the spectrum of creativity and let's try it. And if it stinks, then it stinks and we'll go back to something else. Um, But that might be the reason why I'm not the person in charge right now. <laughs> I need to learn something or whatever. But yeah, I, re- I really personally, I default to my leadership uh, and I kind of have to have them help me pull back sometimes of, eh, not yet or no, that's not going to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, definitely if you are not the senior leader, uh, you have to be submissive and you have to be, you know, um, understand that your role is to serve the, the vision of that leader. And uh, if you are the senior leader, right, then, then the questions are different um, because you have some more latitude. So then I think you have to start not to be, not to continue harp, you know, coming back to the why question, but you have to ask why, whether it's, I want to really hold to this tradition or whether it's let's tear this fence down because it's in our way. At, really wrestle with why you want to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes there are really good reasons to hold to the tradition that you have, you, you've cultivated and kept for a long time. Um, tradition can have deep meaning and deep impact in people, and it's formative, right? Because it's habitual. Mm -hmm. The more you do something, the more you create a habit, the more you are shaped by it. Like, even if we talk about our internal dialogue, if, uh, you know, um, if I continually listen to the voice that says, you know, you're a failure or, you know, whatever, right? Whatever. If I continue to listen to that dialogue, I'm shaped by it. I'm formed by it. Um, Much of the spiritual life, honestly, is allowing the Holy Spirit to change our narrative from the one that we've believed to the narrative that of, of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so, so traditions in that way can be really formative and really impactful for a body, for a people. Um, and so we should ask, you know, why is it that we are considering getting rid of this, right? And if so, what is the benefit? Same thing on the other side. If I'm the kind of person who just blasts through uh, a fence because it's in my way, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, then I have to ask, well, well, why is it? What is it that's resistant here? What is the and and what is it that we're going to be able to do to create disciples in a more meaningful way if we remove this um, tradition or fence or uh, and, and so I think we just have to be have to be thoughtful and considerate in in all of those things and then another thing too just this is something I honestly I've been wrestling with personally lately is recognizing how dependent we are on God pray about it you know like. I was thinking the other day, like this, some, the Holy Spirit just kind of was like, you know what? I am no less needy or dependent on the Holy Spirit today as I would be if I learned that I had stage four cancer tomorrow. 
I need Jesus just as much right now as I would if that were my if that diagnosis came down the line yeah. or if you know but we don't often think in that way and I think the reason that we don't pray oftentimes is because I think right I I I'm a, I foolishly believe that my time my ability and my resources is all I need to accomplish what God's called me to do mm-hmm. and uh, when we forget that we are absolutely dependent on God for everything. Look, my next breath is in his hands. My next heartbeat is in his hands. My next, you know, everything. And when I fail to make prayer a part of, you know, across the scope of my life, let alone my, my leadership, like everything, well, then, then I'm trying to accomplish something in my own strength. And that's a that's a bad place to be, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that anytime you change, you hit it. Anytime you change a tradition, or even are considering changing a tradition, you do need to know the why, like and uh, because, and this is the reason, and not just for yourself, but so that you can share the vision behind it for other people, and they can get on board with it. Um, for instance, I, I, there was a church that I had first started out at when I first started pastoring. I was twenty three, um, and uh, I was the youth pastor and they found out I could play music and sing. And so they were like, we want to change our worship. You're young. You should do it. And so like, I mean, I barely played the guitar and I mostly played drums and could kind of sing. And like, and they're like, you're going to, you're going to lead worship for us. Like, okay, great. And, um, for a long time, it was a very traditional style of music. Um, but this was, I mean, this was late, this was 2010, Um, and they were still in 1999 and they were wanting to move out of that. And so for instance, just to paint the picture, they had a saxophone player, an organist, a pianist with a grand piano, which I don't have anything against those instruments. Um, they had a Trump, uh, a trumpeter, a trumpeteer, uh, whichever way we're going to call it. Um, they had sometimes a percussionist that would show up. Um, but percussionist is a very loose term. Uh, she played the tambourine um, <laughs> and maybe sometimes something else. Uh, she they, wasn't even on the stage. She yeah, just had her tambourine. Yeah, absolutely. Seat, they, well, no, it. they had a shofar dude, a shofar guy that showed up and blew the shofar every oh, once in a while. Oh, um, I mean, th- this is, <laughs> this is the epitome of this is like old school to me, church tradition, you know, early, even late eighties, early nineties. Right. And they were still in this in 2010. So they asked me to change it. The senior leader is like, we need to change this and transition. And so, uh, I'll be honest. I heard a lot of people's feelings, but I did it with the understanding that this is the pastor's vision. We yeah. are doing this to reach a younger generation. We are doing this so that we can play some more relevant quote unquote music. Um, we're doing this to help, uh, to help our younger congregation really connect our younger families, our students, our young adults. We were in a college town. Um, so we're really trying to do this on purpose. I mean, this church still had pews, pink carpet, the whole thing. Right. So like in that time, in that year process of changing the worship, we also pulled the pews out. We took the pink carpet out. Like, I mean, we were a part of really, truly changing the tradition. And at any point, if we didn't have a why behind that, we would have lost half or more than half of the church. Because the only reason that we were able to make that happen is because we were able to say, hey, here's the reason why we don't need a tambourine or a shofar showing up randomly at certain times. It creates a distraction. We want to have a distraction-free worship service. 
Yeah. Boom. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it was very simple to make those calls. And I think even when you're holding to tradition, at some point, there's going to be some point in my life as a worship leader, as a pastor, um, where the generation that's coming behind me is going to say, we need to get rid of all the guitars on stage. You know, mm-hmm. guitars are just old school. Forget guitars. Right. Nobody plays them anymore. We don't need them any longer. And I'm going to be hurt by that. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I need to be aware of there might be a reasoning behind that. And I don't want to hold to the tradition of, well, that's just the way that I grew up. And that's the way that I love music. And so that's the reason why we should keep it this way. That's a poor why. Like the why should never be, well, that's just the way we've always done it. Yeah. The why should have something that's foundational into even into scripture, especially if we're, if we're changing worship traditions or things yeah. like that, it has to be rooted in scripture. And as long as the, to me, as long as the base, the root foundation for the why is rooted in scripture, then the tradition can stay. Or as long as the root, tr- or the root foundation is in scripture of why we want to change something, then it should be changed. And I think you have to go back to that. There are some people, and you could argue me, and that'd be fine, and I'd love to hear it. There are some people that would hold to church traditions simply because it is church tradition. There are whole denominations that are built on church tradition simply because that's the way that they did it in the 1500s and that's the way we're going to do it now. And I would say that's not very good because it's not relevant to the culture. And if everything else around you is moving at, you know, light speed and you're still at a snail's pace, you're going to be left behind. And you might reach the hundred people that you're reaching, but who are the people you're not reaching because you're not willing to give up something that's only important to you or your ancestors and not necessarily important to the gospel? I want to make sure that we separate out preferences from actual traditions Yeah, for a couple of reasons. I mean, number one, um, this is one of the like signposts of the Reformation, right? Um, part of what had happened in the Catholic Church was that church tradition had been elevated to the level of Scripture, mm. right? So doctrine and the church traditions held just as much authority as Scripture, which is one of the things that the Reformers like pushed back against. Like, no, church tradition is not, it, it's sola scriptura, right? It's the, the Scriptures are our only... Uh, rule for faith and conduct. That is the sole authority. That is like everything else has to appeal to that. Uh, And so this idea of whether or not we can change traditions is that, I mean, it's one of the signposts of the Reformation. So we need to recognize that, um, that we still have to find ourselves in a place or need to find ourselves in a place where scripture is the sole authority yeah. where we are appealing to that for for everything the second thing i would say is that the church doesn't have that many traditions and here's what i mean by that right uh jesus commanded us to baptize people and he commanded us to have the lord's supper Those are the only two traditions of the church. Mm -hmm. Everything else is just what we've decided we want to do, how we feel the best expression of the gospel is, what we believe. You know, sometimes it's because we follow a particular denominational tradition, and this is the way that, you know, this is the way Luther did it, or this is the way, um, you know, 
the Methodist church does it, or mm-hmm. this is the way the assemblies of God does it, or this is the way. Sometimes it's just simply that. It's what we've grown up with, what we've been comfortable with, but it's not really the tradition of the church. Like I said, the church has very few traditions. You could probably include, now, those are the two things that Jesus commanded us to do. I would say everything else is negotiable. Everything else is negotiable, right? Um, We have been commanded to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have been commanded to, to participate in the Lord's Supper together. Everything else is negotiable. Uh... I've been I've been a, a worship leader and a worship pastor for 25 years, and it's hard for me to sit here and, and admit to you, but if we don't want to sing, there's no command that says we have to. Yeah. Right? At least in I mean, there's an admonishment, like Paul says, to encourage one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. I mean, there's there's good reasons for doing it, but it's not the end all be all. Yeah. And so everything else, whether it's are we going to have candles or do we have electric lights? Are, are we going to have an organ or do we have guitars and drums? Are we going to, you know, all of Do the, we have smoke machines and LEDs or do we have <laughs> chandeliers? Or, or, yeah, or incense, like the holy smoke. Um, you know, all of that stuff. Do we, do we gather in a building as a large group of people or do we gather as cell groups in homes around our city? Do we, you know, it's wide open. It's wide open, and um, and so we have to come to terms with the fact that these are our preferences. They're not the commands of Christ, and they are not, by any stretch of the imagination, um, integral to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think the other side of that, too, though, right, is that preferences, like we were talking about relevance and you know, I just said staying up with the culture or whatever. There's also the other side of that of why are you doing that? Are you only doing that so you can look like the world? Cause that might not be the greatest idea. Like <laughs> that might be wrong, 100%. you know? And there are a lot of, there are a lot of leaders and churches out there who do that. I mean, there's whole Instagram pages dedicated to leaders and churches who do that. Um, but I think that we also, we have to find somewhere in the middle, right? Like the, the happy, the happy ground, the, the happy place, the, the middle ground essentially of, um, Preferences can also swing to the other side as well of cultural preferences, and we're just going to do the things that the that the culture is preferring, and we're going to look like them, talk like them, act like them, be like them. Everything's going to look like it in regards to reach them, and that might also not be the greatest uh, the greatest option as well. And that's that's where like you could take this and you know listening, and you could say, well. Uh, if, if you're on the older spectrum, I'll say that the older, the little older, maybe 40 and older, right? You could be thinking about, oh, well, this is, you know, kind of attacking essentially traditions that I've held, held dear while well, I'm speaking on the, even the younger generation yeah. of if you are younger and listening to this for some reason, uh, if you're 20, 25, in your Gen Z or whatever, and somehow you stumbled upon this, uh, you also can't hold to, we got to tear everything down and look like the culture and look like what I want, because that's a preference as well. I mean, we do, um, I'm the young adults pastor here and we do a ministry called United with other churches. And the very first message that we gave this year was we are not going to hold our preferences above the gospel. We will not do it because it's we're made up of five different churches who are vastly different. Yeah. Um, our churches are very much different denominationally and traditionally, and yet we come together to do something that's that's different for 
all of us and we say we're going to lay down the preferences simply to reach the campus and the young adults that are here in this uh, community and nothing else matters except for the gospel. That's what that's what we intend to do. There's only one question that's relevant in terms of tradition, right? Whether whether we are not traditionalists and we, you know, or whether we're super traditionalist, there's only one question that matters, and that is whether or not we are effectively forming people into the image of Christ. Yeah. And and you can be you can be doing a terrible job of it on both sides. Absolutely. You can also be doing a good job of it on both sides. Um, but that's the question. That's the that's the issue. And if anything that we are doing is not forming the image of Christ in people, then it's not worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Uh, and man, we, you know, myself included, we can get really wrapped up in the other stuff because I like it. Yeah. Um, I think it might be profitable at this juncture to touch on the problem of boredom. Um, and so what I mean by that is like, I can think of a few things more punishing to a person of high creativity than boredom, than making them bored. About mm-hmm. something, and so boredom uh, creates creativity. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's like I want to get so away I tell from my this kids boredom. All the time. Like you're bored, we'll figure something out to do. Be creative, yeah. man. I, I tell my kids, being bored is an insult to yourself. <laughs> Only so, boring people get bored, Michael. Oh, I'm, Sorry. <laughs> let's. Uh, there, there's, there's two, maybe two issues here. One is when you're about to change what we'll call a preference and you're changing that preference because of boredom in yourself. Okay, first of all, do you think that if a church leader is bored with something, that that's an accurate reflection as to whether or not the congregation's bored with it? Not always. No. I'll give you a very quick example. So we have some lights on our back wall that are uh, bar lights, bar LED lights. And originally we had them set up in this uh, basically 45 degree pattern and equidistant apart and everything. And we had that for about, I don't know, nine months. And I just staring at that for nine months on a screen or like uh, in the congregation, I was like, I'm sick and tired of looking at this design. It's too symmetrical. I can't stand it. So now everything's asymmetrical and we turned them, uh, we turned them horizontal and we put them all over the place. And it was literally because I was bored and I was on a whim. I was like, I hate this. We're going to do it today. Uh, <laughs> you know, I got the residents with me. I was like, here's what we're doing for today. And we did it before lunch just cause I was bored with it. Now, uh, do I think the congregation was bored with it? Absolutely not. Um, but I did it because I was tired of looking at it and it, that kind of a preference does not have any bearing on right, anybody's right, spirituality right. or presenting the gospel. It is just something that I did not personally like. Okay. So that's the most important part. What you said at the end there, I think, mm-hmm. because if you have something that happens to be facilitating spiritual growth pretty effectively, but you're bored with that thing. I mean, I think the obvious answer to that is don't change it, but what are some, I don't know, tools you could give church leaders to help combat the boredom? Because look, it seems to me like to some degree we need to embrace boredom because we're trying to teach the gospel and the gospel doesn't change. You know, if you listen to your favorite song 10,000 times, you would be bored of it. Even if it's your favorite song, Mm -hmm. you would get bored of it. So isn't there some wisdom in embracing boredom when it comes to teaching eternal truths? I would say rather than framing it that way, I would say it's not a matter of embracing boredom. It's a matter of embracing ritual. Mm. There, there is something important 
informative about ritual. You know, going back to the, you know, baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion or whatever you may call it at your church, right? Um, those are essential rituals of the church and they are deeply formative. Now, how we go about those, that's where, you know, for example, if let's say, let's say your church has done the Lord's Supper in a particular way for the last hundred years, right? Uh, and it has become just routine, right? And I want to separate the idea of routine from ritual. Uh, and so it's become routine. Well, maybe it would be beneficial not to abandon that ritual, but to put it in another part of the service, frame it in a different way, um, you know, uh, add different elements of the service within the context of that so that we can cause people to see it differently, change their perspective, re-engage with the meaning, re-engage with the, the purpose and the, you know, and, and, and see Christ again. Uh, and so, uh, in that way, we need to hold fast to those traditions, to use that word again, right? We need to hold fast to those things, but we need not be tied to the form of those things. Um, and that's that's where we get tripped up sometimes. It's like, okay, well, the service has to look like this from now until Jesus returns, right? We, right? we can't mess with this format because this, you know, uh, and I would say, man, like, mess with the format, right? Um, because, I mean, even the littlest things, like, you know, Kendall was talking about changing those lights on the back wall, which is certainly, you know, a, a not, not, as, not nearly as big a consequence as some other things that you might change. But, but just for the sake of the example, the people in the church may not have been bored with it, right? But they will notice that change. And that change causes a change in perspective, even that little thing, right? You you notice something that you didn't notice before because things look different. And when things look different, then your mind begins to look for the differences. Yeah, your antenna's up. Right. And so then when you... When you, when you change something that's of greater consequence, so let's say you move where you're doing the Lord's Supper in the service, or you break it up into to its elements, and you take the, you know, you receive the bread at one point, and then you sing a song, and then you receive the, the, the wine or the juice, and then you, you know, so you change the context of it, well, then all of a sudden you've raised people's antennas again. Right, and so maybe now they're reflecting on an aspect of the atonement that they hadn't seen before. Where all of a sudden now, when, because you broke it up and you're singing and giving time for response after you receive the bread, all of a sudden they're reflecting on the broken body of Jesus. They're reflecting on the stripes that were laid on his back that purchased our healing. They they consider the 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 scriptures and how that the you know the word of God talks about that you know the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Like he took the you know we we think through all those things. It creates a, a new opportunity, a new way of viewing things, a new way of thinking about things, and then we we 
We learn something of the character of God. We we learn something of the depth of His love for us. We we can't dismiss these as simply. I'm making these changes because a I want to be more modern or b I'm bored with something like these can be really significant things if if we engage them in a thoughtful way. Yeah, yeah I think the question <clears throat> that has to be asked again we keep going back to this is why are you bored with it? Like, is it, are you, cause you said in the example that it is actually successful, right? Like there is something that that's happening. It is successfully uh, accomplishing spiritual formation, mm-hmm. discipleship. Um, and I think that's the question you have to go back to is why are you personally bored with it? Is there something that is in you that is dissonant to what is going on? And if it's successful as a spiritual development and you're unhappy with it, that might be a problem with you, yeah, you know, like that might be an sure. issue with you and, huh. and where you're at. And so um, I like the fact that you brought up ritual because the way that I think about it is if you start to get bored with it, you need to look at the question of why. And then you need to think about like, I'm just going to be disciplined in this. Cause you know what? Sometimes like, I, I mean, I, I come from a training background. I hate going to the gym and it's boring. I'm going to do the same thing and it gets boring. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to do squats on Monday and I know that they're coming up and I'm dreading them or not really wanting to do them, but I know that they're doing something good for me. And so I go anyways and I push through it and that's called a discipline. And um, so I think it's also adding that word to it is like saying, okay, even if I'm bored with this, if this is working and if this is something that's going well, and if I ask the question why, or if I ask the question should, and I pray about it and the answer is still stay with this, then I've got to to be disciplined on it. I mean, the spiritual disciplines are that way. There are some times when you're reading through, you know, scripture and you get to the, uh, you get to the genealogies and you're like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm going to try to find something new in this, but this is really hard. <laughs> like it's a discipline, right? You still have to do it. You don't just gloss over it, maybe, yeah. but you don't just gloss over it and be like, ah, whatever. I don't need to read those. It's a discipline to go through it and say, even if this might be slightly boring in the in the in the scent, the context, I've got to make I've got to find a way to not make it boring or to to find the newness in it or to find something that I can craft out of that. And that's why I said that to my original point is boring people get bored uh, or like boring is a good thing is because it makes you ask questions. It makes you discover new things. It makes you try to figure out what is actually going on here. Is there something bigger that I'm not seeing? Is there something smaller that I'm not seeing? It causes you to pause and to say, what else, if anything, could we do? And if not, then help me see the beauty in these little things. Like, I mean, I I believe that is what really boredom should be for is the opportunity to create and or appreciate. Yeah, that's really good. I think maybe like a good analogy is if you have like a band that's been performing the same hit song at concerts for like 20 years. I mean, they got, got to be bored. I don't know. I'm not a musician, <laughs> yeah. but like, it seems to me like you, I play the same songs for six months and I'm bored. of them. Yeah. So. <laughs> but like if it's a hit song and the people love it, like they're, they're doing it out of discipline for the people that love mm-hmm. it and yeah. the, the efficacy of it. So that's all, that's all really good. Uh, great uh, answers there. So what are you guys doing? We can close on this, but what are you guys doing for, uh, as, as we approach the new year, what are you doing to help reju- rejuvenate yourself? What are you doing to kind of, do you think it's important to add some closure to 2021 as you go into 2022 so that it doesn't kind of become one long marathon? And what are you doing to kind of get yourself ready for the new year? 
Oh, man. So a couple things on that. Number one, I want to preface this by saying if you are at a place where you're feeling like you might be burnt out or you're in need of some rejuvenation, I don't say this with any judgment. Um, Having said that, I would say that if you are approaching the end of the year and you feel like you need to be rejuvenated, it's probably because there's been a lack of margin in your life over the course of the year that has led you to that place. So I would say, number one, examine your rhythms Mm. and see where you need to be creating margin for silence, for solitude, uh, for rest, um, because we, we can be prone to not do those things. Uh, and so, so examine those things, look at those things, make room in your life for those things, because that's what will sustain you over the long haul. Uh, to the second part of your question, I would say, yes, I think that it is important for us to recognize when a chapter is closing and a new chapter is beginning. And, you know, the changing of a year provides a great opportunity for that. And I think we need to examine that. It's good for us to look back over the course of 2021 and uh, and celebrate the victories that God has brought um, and and mourn the losses as well. I mean, there you know, there's a time for both of those things. Uh, and then look forward to you know, what's coming next and say, God, what is it that you're calling us to in this next season? What is it that you're speaking to us? What is it as a, as a people, what is it as, as a person, like both individually and in a corporate way, ask those kinds of questions, uh, and, and then, uh, allow the Lord to, to lead you in that way and propel you forward. Um, and for some of you, if you're feeling like you're, you need some rejuvenation, that you, you're you in a place where you are dry and empty, um, I want to encourage you, set aside time right now and don't wait. Uh, because we have this tendency to think that everything's going to fall apart if I'm not here, or I've got to keep all these plates spinning or all these balls in the air or however you, you know, whatever analogy you want to use. At the end of the day, whenever I believe that to be true. What I am saying is, God, you are not enough to sustain this if I'm not here. Mm. Five days away to pray, to rest, to recuperate is is not going to be the, the death knell for your church. And if it is, then there are way bigger problems than whether or not you're gone for five days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are way bigger issues that aren't going to be addressed just because you didn't take some time, right? God is enough. God is enough. Uh, and any inclination that that pushes me toward believing that to be less than true is is one that I have to resist. You just got to push back against it because God's always enough. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> for me, that was really good uh, and probably will uh, go against some of what I'm going to say. Uh, so please listen to Todd. Don't listen to me. This is <laughs> this is a preference and this is maybe a not wise thing. But <laughs> so I, you did say something in there about rhythms, about yeah. uh, understanding your rhythms, your current rhythms. And um, I try to live on that spectrum of things versus new year, new me, new year, new mindset. Um, and again, like for me, it just goes to 
Like I've, I've worked with a lot of people in coaching and, and even in pastoring that are like, well, you know, come the new year, things are going to change. Right. Or I'm going to make this commitment <clears throat> January 1. Hey, right now, I know this is the way it looks, but man, next year is going to be incredible. And that just automatically sets you up for failure. <laughs> like anything worth doing is worth doing right now. Uh, it's in, in my, in my, uh, in my perspective. And I think that it's important to, um, to understand that you can make changes throughout the year. You can be restored sure. throughout the year. You can be recharged throughout the year. Yes, this is something that's built into it, uh, but or built into the calendar. But it's funny because you said, "How do you keep from just you know it being this long, uh, drawn out thing?" To me, I, I don't know. It's it just the way that I view things. Like I don't know that it matters to me personally. Um, there you were right about there are times that we need to look back. But sometimes like for me, the way that my rhythms go is that especially with young adult ministry is that uh, in college ministry, this next six weeks is a downtime for me. And I'm going to make sure that I am not grinding as hard in these next six weeks uh, for, you know, like I would during the season, essentially in the summer is a downtime for me. And I take way more time off during the summer because I don't have as much uh, hands-on stuff to do in that moment. So I have to understand those rhythms. Um, and I think that it doesn't matter when you do it, <clears throat> whether it's January 1 or, you know, August 30th. It doesn't really matter as long as you are experiencing rhythm and as long as you are taking time to be restored, as long as you are taking time to recharge or you're taking time to look back. Um, yeah, the change of the calendar does not matter to me one bit. It's more of like understanding seasons. Um, so for instance, uh, at the end of, let's say next semester for our, our young adults ministry, May 6th, I think, or May 7th is one of the last days. And I'll look back and say, okay, how did that season go? Yeah. I'm actually having a meeting later today that is talking about how did this last season go? And it has nothing to do with the fact that it's 2022 in a couple of, in a month. It has nothing to do with that. It's just the season has ended. Yeah. So what is next? And um, so personally for me, the calendar means nothing. It's just a matter of recognizing the seasons that I'm in and, uh, and being restored that way. So for me, we do it. We do it here as the church, and it's a tradition right now uh, that we take time of 21 days of prayer and fasting. And so that's what I'm going to do. Um, not necessarily because it's January 1st. We could have done it in June, but simply because right. that's something that we do. It does help recharge. I want to do that. Um, so yeah, for me, it's just it has to be a, a, a seasonal thing and not necessarily a yearly thing. So. Yeah, that's interesting how the how rest can be subjective for each person, but the need for it is definitely not subjective. That yeah. everybody ha has whatever well, form your rest comes in, you got to have it. Yeah, and you have to recognize like that you're different than the pastor down the street, mm -hmm. or even like like I'll, I'll just for me and Kendall, I'll give you an example. Kendall, I would say. Uh, has a higher level of endurance than I do. Like, I, I need rest more frequently than Kendall does. He runs in a different rhythm than I do. Now, that's not good or bad. It yeah. just is, right? The tendency can be, okay, because Kendall has a fairly high level of endurance, he could probably tend to push through things when he shouldn't. Yeah. And not rest when he needs to. I've done it. Me, on the other hand, because I 
I could either, number one, start playing the comparison game and go, oh man, I got to keep up with Kendall. Or I can go, oh, I'm tired. I'm just not going to do this today. Neither of which is healthy, right? So, so like examine your own heart, yeah. examine your own life. Look at what is most healthy for you and, and, and what the Lord is calling you to. Like, and, and don't get so caught up in, in those other things. Again, going back to what I was saying, God is enough. And, um, and I just have to push back against any inclination in me that says he's not. Yeah. That is a great place to end it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us on the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.